0: This is an ABC podcast. It was lovely to get my back in the black mug out on on Budget Night again. Look, I would say a lot of it is good luck and some of it is good management.
1: I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud.
0: This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide.
2: Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent...
0: We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened.
1: Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people here in Parliament House Canberra.
2: And I'm Frank Kelly coming to you from the land of the Ghana people. I'm in Adelaide, PK. It's budget week, and even if you're not a political animal, and let's face it, why would you be listening to us if you're not? But even if you're not, it's hard to miss the fact that Jim Chalmers handed down his second Labor budget this week, a budget that surprised in its delivery of a surplus, while at the same time disappointed some who wanted more for those doing it toughest, those on Job JobSeeker, study, Youth Allowance. That's not the whole story, but the Treasurer's catch cry this week has been a responsible budget that showed the spending restraint required but that also provide cost of living relief, $14.6 billion of it really the defining influence on our decisions around the cost of living package our decisions around the growth package and the historic restraint that we've shown in spending uh, has been this inflation challenge you know, and we are supremely confident that the budget that we handed down last night uh, will take some of these cost of living pressures off without adding to inflation That's the Treasurer giving his post-budget National Press Club address on Wednesday and our guest this morning in the party room is Danielle Wood. She's the CEO of the Grattan Institute. We just thought we'd do things a little bit differently in this budget podcast because rather than just invite a journalist on to look at the politics of the budget, we're going to play meet the economists and and work through some of the economic questions that have come up since this budget was delivered. You know, Big questions like, will the new spending on JobSeeker and single parents and Medicare be inflationary? The Treasurer just telling this there he's supremely confident it won't be. Will they cause the RBA to lift rates again? And what about the stage three tax cuts? No mention of them in the budget papers, but they're still coming, according to the Prime Minister.
1: It's been legislated. We haven't changed our position. Are you worried it might be inflationary? We haven't changed our position. Should you assess whether it's inflationary? We have not
2: changed our position, Patricia. It wasn't a part of our consideration in this budget. So the PM and the Treasurer and the Finance Minister, Katie Gallagher, all out on the big budget sell this week. It's relentless as they try and get their message sort of out above the political fray. Cheaper childcare, higher wages for aged care workers, a boost to job seeker, bigger for those over 55, a Medicare boost to make bulk billing more available for pensioners and kids. That's a big one, actually, $3.5 billion to convince GPs to bulk bill again. PK, you're there in Canberra still. How do you think the budget sell is going? I
1: think this is one of the trickiest budgets that they've had to craft. And the response, how they're going with selling it, absolutely vindicates that view, right? So they've been basically accused from the progressive side of politics of being too cheap and uh, not providing enough to the most vulnerable. And at the same time, there are a lot of uh, economists, some, saying that this is inflationary even though they've been so targeted and so modest, in my view, in the lift to these welfare payments. So doesn't that sort of tell you everything you need to know? Now, the government says, see, that means we've got it right Mm -hmm. and I suppose the proof will be in the pudding over the next couple of weeks and months. How does the RBA uh, deal with this next month? Do they increase rates? Is the claim that it's inflationary, which we'll discuss with our economist, uh, um, is it right or is it true or how much of it is true? But the fact is $14.6 billion in a cost of living package as its centrepiece. And definitely an incremental but significant win for the most vulnerable, who are Labor's traditional base, which the Prime Minister said to Laura Tingle in the 7.30 interview, you know, that the Labor Party should be seen as the natural fit for government and should help the the most needy is how he frames it. But the fact that it's got this mixed response, that, you know, Adam Bant, the Greens leader, is scathing about it not being enough. By the way, even though he says that, he also confirmed to me on Thursday morning on Our and Breakfast that he's not going to stand in the way of any help. So he is going to wave it all through. He's just making political points. I thought that was interesting. He knows, you know, standing in the way of any of this would not be a good look. So that is key. But I just think that the balancing act, when you go back to that question about how they are selling it, well, they're, they're quite defensive. They're, they're in defensive mode because they have to defend the budget and the, their argument that it won't be inflationary as they get hammered on that point.
2: It is difficult. I was really struck by the the response to the budget from uh, Senator Tammy Tyrrell. She's the other member of the Jackie Lambie uh, party, the Jackie Lambie network. Um, I I, I wonder if her response will have heartened the government, if it's going to be a response that's somewhat typical of people who have been you know, found themselves in hard times. I know
0: how tough it can be, and I know how hard it is to cover the bills on the dole. It's not flashy, it's not pretty, it's It's not like gregarious and over the top, but it's
2: safe. That's Senator Tammy Tyrrell. PK, we we touched on some of the um, the new measures in our bonus budget podcast yesterday, but let's go through some of the main ones again now, in case people didn't didn't hear that episode. The ones that are really pulling the most focus so far in the budget cell, Labor's committed to increasing job seeker, odd study, and youth allowance forty dollars a fortnight boost, two dollars eighty five a day. That's less than Scott Morrison did in his last budget, actually, as Senator David Pocock and others like to point out at every opportunity. There's even more funding provided to people over 55. The government will also increase Commonwealth rent assistance up by $31 a fortnight, that's an extra 15%, again a drop in the bucket of what people need right now, but that amount costs $2.7 billion, so you can really see that lifting these payments is quite expensive. The single parent payment, that was extended from when your child turns 8 to when they turn 14, a boost of over $170 a fortnight at a cost of $1.9 billion over four years, and one universally supported across the parliament so far. Alongside those measures, the government's also boosted health spending, including the headline-grabbing tripling of the bulk billing rebate, which means a GP will now get $20.65 on top of the Medicare rebate for bulk billing a patient. That's up from $6.60. Now, whether that's going to be enough to entice GPs back to bulk billing, kids and pension holders, we will see. Some early signs are not that positive, especially from inner-city doctors. But, you know, the government's hopeful that at least stop the slide, which has been really problematic. So a classic Labor budget with a focus on health and social support, but a surplus, something Labor hasn't been able to do since Paul Keating was Treasurer. So, PK, the government has got to get it through the Parliament before it can deliver all this. And what I've been hearing from the opposition doesn't really suggest They're going to be a lot of help. The Shadow Treasurer says this budget divides Australia. You know, it's helping the lowest paid at the expense of middle Australia. The unfairness of this budget is it gives with one hand to some uh, and takes with the other hand from others. Is this dangerous for Anthony Albanese, do you think?
1: It's too early to tell, but a couple of political points. There is a view everywhere in politics that there are no votes in increasing welfare payments, right? Right. Can I just be clear that doesn't mean it shouldn't happen and in fact labor just did it because it should happen but I don't think this budget is the kind of budget that will you know give give them necessarily a bounce so what the coalition is trying to do I'm not saying there's any evidence of this, but they're suggesting that you'll see more interest rate rises because the government has made a decision to increase welfare payments, that that will have a consequence of making life harder for the RBA in their decision making, making inflation more persistent and therefore increasing interest rates, and that middle Australia will therefore suffer. That is potentially a very potent political line. So that's what they're striking at. Now, they haven't really, I don't think, been successful at striking some of their potent political lines. And another point is worth considering. This point being that since COVID and the Redbridge Group makes this point, they've done a lot of focus groups and polling around this, that there is more empathy in the community and that perhaps the traditional politics may not play out as traditionally as usual and that maybe people will think, hang on a minute, these people are on their knees, they're having a really hard time and understand it. That's all very interesting. But the coalition wants people to think, hang on a minute, I can barely afford my mortgage, it keeps going up, and I don't get any help from this budget. So that's what the, the line they're trying to strike. In terms of what they'll do, they'll wave through the energy relief. They say they've always been in favour of that. I, I, Labor's been mocking them for that, and I think that's fair enough, can I say, because they weren't always in favour. In fact, they were very critical of the caps that uh, ultimately have led to this. the ability of the government to deliver this. They were not in favour of that but they are in favour of the relief because they don't want to stand in the way of people getting reduction in their bills. But on the unemployment benefit, they don't seem to be overly enthusiastic. And we're hearing a little bit of that kind of, well, these people should go get a job. Well, that's all very easy to say, isn't it, Fran? But there's a reason they're entrenched in unemployment and they're not just going to go and get jobs or they would have by now. So you Mm. need to kind of deal with that fundamental question. One more point I want to make, and that's you can always tell where the opposition's going by listening to the first question they ask after a budget in question time. The first question that Peter Dutton asked, he has raised migration. And migration is where they're going. Listen to everything they say. There is high rates of migration in the next two years. It's a lag from the, the COVID shutdowns. There is anxiety in the community about housing, rent prices, inflation, and Peter Dutton is zeroing in on that. Watch that space because on that, I think they do have some political traction that they'll be able to exploit. Potentially dangerous territory, but I think the government knows that on this they may get some traction, Fran.
2: Yeah, immigration is an age old, you know, warning bell, isn't it really? The uh, general population in Australia has shown over decades that, you know, we are easily quite scared by the other, the thought of the other coming in. And in this case, with the housing market so tough, it's very easy for people to think, oh, more people, that means less houses, that's going to make it even worse. And to some extent, that's true. The government has answers to that to some degree. It wants to get its housing fund through, and that might put pressure on the Greens too. But but and also that's stymied it, at the moment. Can I yeah, say that's, that's just, yeah, that's stymied. Yeah, we'll come back to that probably in future podcast. But also the other. Come back. It has, which is trying to get out there, which is more difficult to counter. This narrative is that the numbers of immigration uh, that are forecast under this budget are really just almost the same as the coalition had forecast when in government back in 2019 over the next five years. But that's kind of trying to prove a negative, isn't it? In a way, so I agree mm-hmm. with you. That's that's tricky for the government, and they will have to divert there to some degree. But but I must say, I think that um, you know the the Redbridge. Um, polling, I think is true. I think generally there has been an understanding across the community. We've got economists now piling in on this, you know, almost everyone of any note suggesting that the job seeker allowance is too low, that everyone understands people can't live on that amount of money per day. So I think that idea has taken root in the community and there will be support for that overall. I mean, I thought it sounded a bit mean when Angus Taylor came up with that sort of talk about, you know, go get a job and didn't say those words exactly. And that's feeding into the polling we saw after Aston, wasn't it, which showed that, you know, there's a bit of a thought around the coalition there, they're the nasty party. So I don't know that that's going to get them very far, but we do, however, see Anthony Albanese, Katie Gallagher, Jim Chalmers coming back with the counter. We're hearing that a lot. Oh, childcare for middle Australia so they can get, you know, makes it easier for people to get back into the workforce too. Medicines are cheaper, improved bulk billing for your kids, energy bill rebates. The government is madly running through these things that are there for working Australians. What do you think we're expecting from the opposition leader tonight, PK? Because Peter Dutton's going to have to do more than just throw pot shots, isn't he?
1: Yeah, and my understanding is that he will do more. Whether you're going to get the entire, you know, election manifesto from the coalition on the Thursday night, you're not. But you will get a bit of a direction. I do think, look, in this migration area, uh, housing is the other one. Uh, the opposition's view was that the government's rather undercooked on housing. They know that it is the number one red hot button issue in the community. Having said that, I think the argument that the government makes that why are they standing then in the way of this social housing legislation in the Senate is a pretty strong political point they make. They're the areas you should look for. But I will be interested to see, is this budget where Labor's honeymoon ends because people uh, feel the crunch and perhaps are starting to feel a little more grumpy? This is quite a key moment for Labor. They know it. It could be quite a key turning point. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Danielle Woods, CEO of the Grattan Institute and someone with a very, very big
2: brain. Welcome to the party room. Thank you for having me. Yeah, just terrific to have you with us, Danielle, to play Meet the Economist. Let's see if you can help because I want to start with the, the surprise surplus delivered in the budget. It's been billed as the turnaround of the century. How did the Treasury go from forecasting $32 billion deficit to banking a $4 billion surplus this year? And should the government get applause for that or did this fall into its lap?
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful set of numbers, isn't it? Um, Mm. And it was lovely to get my back in the black mug out on, on budget night again. Look, I would say a lot of it is good luck and some of it is good management. So we cannot deny that they have been showered with revenue, rivers of gold, an extra $146 billion hitting the bottom line. Through a collection of uh, the economy being stronger than Treasury expected, and particularly the strong labour market, low unemployment, high labour force participation, all of that's feeding through into income tax receipts. Big increase in commodity tax, um, commodity prices as well, compared to the assumptions which has flowed through in terms of higher company tax revenue. And so the government has banked most, more than 80% of that windfall, bit going out the door in, in new policies, about $20 billion. Uh, And so the government would argue that, you know, yes, it's had some good luck, but it's been relatively restrained. And uh, we went through the exercise yesterday of actually sort of going back through budgets over time and having a look at how other treasurers had gone in the face of of similar windfalls. Mm. And the the claim stacks up pretty well. Um, The only treasurer that's done better in the past 20 years in terms of restraint was Wayne Swan back in 2010. Coming out of the GFC, he banked 93% of the, the windfall gains that year. In some years, it it's as low as 6%, which was Peter Costello back in mm. 2004. So, you know, banking 80% plus, at least by the standards of recent history, uh, is, is pretty
1: responsible. So could a drover's dog have delivered it? Uh, could a drover's dog have
0: delivered it? Well, certainly there was a lot of help for the dog in getting there, but you, you still needed to make some calls in terms of not doing everything. So I, I think that's a little unfair.
1: Okay, and could they have done more for the most vulnerable? I mean, you just full disclosure, you were also on the Women's Economic Committee that did want them to go further on some things. But from the economic rather than political perspective, because that's why we wanted you here, should they have gone further? Because then they wouldn't have been able to deliver this surplus and they wouldn't have been able to, to bank so much of the savings, right? Yeah. So the balancing act that they were
0: facing was very clear and I think well-founded demands to do more for the vulnerable against the risk of, you know, one, adding to inflationary pressures if they they spent too much and didn't offset it. uh, and two, compromising the the budget position, which really matters for the kind of long term structural budget position. So yes, they could have done more, but they would have had to find more offsets. So my better version of the world would have been more on on job seeker. The increase is welcome. But still, you know, nowhere near enough to, to bring people to some sort of basic standard of living to get by on those payments. Uh, but to do that and to do that in an economically responsible way, that would have meant bigger decisions on either cutting
2: spending elsewhere in the budget or increasing taxes elsewhere. Mm. You, uh, as Pico mentioned, you're on the government's Women's Economic Equality Task Force, which came up with a raft of recommendations for the government, some of which were adopted. I think three out of six adopted. Holly, and others endorsed for future years. The government is really pitching this budget, as shifting the dial on equity for women. What do you think? Has the government done enough for women in this budget? Can they make that claim? Look, I think particularly if you take this budget
0: with the October budget, it is a pretty uh, remarkable set of policies for women. So if you think the increase in the childcare subsidy and the, the paid parental leave policy, which is increasing government paid parental leave to 26 weeks over time, uh, including setting aside some for dads and partners. You know, those policies are really about unlocking the workforce participation of of women and Mm -hmm. um, giving women the choice to to participate more, which boosts their economic security. Uh, The aged care pay rise and funding that is critically important. That is just recognition that those workers have been underpaid and undervalued for too long. Uh, And it's absolutely necessary if that sector is going to continue to function, we need to be able to attract and retain staff. That workforce is 90% women. And then the measures uh, on Tuesday night were really about the most vulnerable women. You know, extending the single parenting payment for parents whose children are under 14 compared to under eight. You know, that will bring some of those households and some of those kids out of poverty uh, the increase in rent assistance is modest, but, but certainly welcome. Uh, and some of the energy bill relief, et cetera, will be relevant to those households as well. So I think as a package, it is a substantial delivery for women. Of course, there is more that we would like to see, but I think it's a pretty good start.
1: Now, the elephant in the room, the big question still is inflation. And inflation has even been described by the Treasurer Jim Chalmers as the, the dragon he has to slay. But the government is really a little bit on the back foot, it seems, in this budget. It's been very defensive, defending against claims that its $14.6 billion cost of living package might mean the RBA is more likely now to lift rates again or that inflation stays in the economy for longer. What's your view? Because economists are really divided on this one, Danielle.
0: Yeah, look, I think um, some came out very strongly initially and said, oh, you know, the world's going to fall in. Uh, you know, the RBA is going to have to go much further. I think people are settling down a bit now. And look, the answer is really, it is inflationary, but not very much. If we even go beyond the, the cost of living package and we look at the total set of policy decisions in this budget, that'll add about 20 billion over four years. It is front-end loaded. So there's 12 billion in the next financial year, which is relevant because inflation is high right now. Some of the measures, so particularly the energy bill relief, will bring down prices in the CPI bucket, which will kind of bring down headline inflation. And the government was was talking that that will reduce headline inflation by about 0.25 percentage points, the, the energy bill relief alone. That's a good thing. Frankly, bringing that measure down right now when it's high is really important for containing expectations. Over time, though, you're putting money in people's pockets, they'll spend a bit more. Uh, but now we're seeing people come out with estimates of how that will flow
2: through to CPI and can you help us a bit with that? Like when you say some of it will be inflationary, you know, people had in anticipation of this been implying that for those who are very low paid, you know, $40 extra fortnight, for instance, well, they will spend it because they spend everything, but that's not going to be inflationary. Where do you see that? What are the bits? Help us understand what are the bits that might be inflationary?
0: It is inflationary. It's just a question of how much. So yes, if you give people more rent assistance, more job seeker, uh, more money in their pockets because the electricity bills are lower, they will spend that money. It will hit the economy and that will put upward pressure on prices. But we just have to think about how much does that matter given the $2.5 trillion size of our economy. The estimates are now that $12 billion next year is only going to add about 0.1 percentage points to the CPI. So it's not nothing, but it is pretty small. Uh, it is unlikely to you know force the Reserve Bank to do anything that it wouldn't have done anyway. It's not taking pressure off the Reserve Bank, but nor is it likely to trigger any more interest rate rises.
1: But how about the timing? Does timing matter? I mean, some of this doesn't even get in any bank accounts for people what September. Like, it takes a while. Does that have any impact?
0: Uh, Look, some of these measures do take a while. So the rent assistance, for example, is not happening to September. So timing matters in this world because we are in the world where inflation, we're kind of just coming off the peak now. It's still running at 7%, which everyone in this country would be feeling. Uh, It is expected to come down over the course of this year. And so some of this money will be hitting the economy a little bit later where the the impact isn't as concerning as as things that are happening
2: right now. Let's cut to the chase, Danielle. I mean, if the RBA puts rates up again next month or the month after, there will be some, and I'm tipping it, it might be the opposition, who's saying that's because of the government's budget. The government's budget was inflationary. Would that be a fair call or not?
0: Not on the scale of of what's been done here. A fair call would be the government didn't make Phil Lowe's job easier. It didn't make a rate rise less likely by um, running a tighter budget. That would be fair. But what they have done is pretty modest. It's pretty targeted. It doesn't look like it adds a whole lot to inflationary pressure. And so I don't think it's going to be keeping Phil Lowe up at night. He's probably okay. got a lot of things keeping him up at night
1: right now, but
0: the budget's not going to be a
1: major contributor to that. <laughs> the stage three tax cuts weren't mentioned in the budget, but uh, the Treasurer was, of course, asked about them. He said, no big deal. You know, why would they be in the budget? They're already legislated. Well, they were in the October budget. That's why it matters. $69 billion extra over the next four years, right? Danielle, you've already said that you think they should be changed, not totally dumped but changed but how do you see them in the context of inflation and that dragon and their timing and do you still think there's a case for changing them
0: yeah it's interesting and as we get closer so these these tax cuts are due to come into effect July 2024 one more After budget before the next before budget then. indeed so it's been a little bit difficult to talk about, you know, whether they make sense in a, a macroeconomic sense because, you know, it, it is a while into the future. But from what we know from the numbers in the budget, Treasury is expecting that inflation will still be elevated. Then uh, mm. it will be back within the Reserve Bank's target range that year, but the upper end at two point seven five percent the tax cuts will be factored into those estimates but yes they will be contributing to that inflation because they're big you know i was just talking about you know this the impact of policy decisions in this budget is 20 billion over 4 years those tax cuts are worth 20 billion in their first year so they do add a lot more money into the economy than any decision that was made in this budget some of that will get saved because they are more targeted towards higher income earners Uh, they don't spend every dollar, they save some, which reduces some of that inflationary impact. But the inflationary impact of that package overall will be much bigger than what we saw on Tuesday night in the budget. So it will flow through to inflation. We don't know how much of a problem that will be by the time we get to July 2024. But if we still have an inflation problem, you can bet that that will be part of the debate about whether those tax cuts
2: make sense. Well, you just said it there yourself. Most of this, the tax cuts go to higher income earners and that's a political uh, issue, I think, with a lot of voters for the government, but it's also a political plus for some voters. You've said that you think the tax cuts should be rearranged, pared back a bit. How do you think they should be delivered? Because Anthony Albanese, and we heard him earlier in this podcast, telling Patricia not once, not twice, but three times that he's got no plans to change the introduction of the stage three tax cuts. How could they and should they be changed to make them fairer and more economically responsible in your view?
0: So I think there should be some tax cuts. And the the reason I say that is if we don't deliver any tax relief, you know, bracket creep will have been running for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, That means that Tax rates are creeping up right across the board. So some tax relief is in order. It's the scale of that tax package that concerns me. I mean, that was developed, of course, back in 2019 before we'd had COVID. Very different world. We thought we were going to be seeing surpluses as far as the eye can see. So the scale of that package is a problem. Uh, And as you say, there's a question around fairness. The cuts are much bigger at the top, but they also tend to overcompensate for bracket creep right at the top end. How would you change them? Wouldn't ditch them all together because I said I think we need some compensation for bracket creep. I would leave in the thirty-seven cent tax bracket. So remember, one of the components of this package is pulling out that tax bracket, yeah. which means that everyone between um, earning between forty-five thousand and two hundred thousand will pay the same marginal rate, which gets I, I rid of ra- bracket
2: creep for a long time, right?
0: All these tax changes are about addressing bracket creep. So yes, it does, but as I said, it overcompensates at the top. If we left that in, what that would mean is. Everyone under 120000 was getting the same tax cut that they expected. Uh, you would trim the tax cuts for those earning more than $120,000. they would still be getting several thousand dollars a year, um, just not you know, the 9,000 plus that you're getting if you own more than 200,000, you would reduce the cost of that package from 20 billion a year to about 12 billion a year. So reduce the fiscal cost, you make the package fairer, you reduce the inflationary impact. uh, And I think that strikes a fair balance.
1: That's a really interesting idea. The other area I'd like to just take you to, which I feel was a little undercooked in this budget, is housing. And I say that because, you know, I host RM Breakfast now and every day, the biggest issue that comes up is housing and also migration. But on housing, the government's Housing Future Fund, Danielle, I mean, it's sort of stuck in the Senate. There's been argy-bargy. It's been criticised a lot from the Greens and others for not, it's not indexed, it's not big enough. What's your view? Does it kind of provide something that's necessary right now? Or should they be going further on that as well?
0: I mean, the Housing Future Fund is very much targeted at building new social housing, uh, which is, you know, really about helping the, the most vulnerable. We think it's you know, important that that happen. Uh, there's there's clearly a huge backlog and a massive need for more social housing. I think the fund could be bigger. Um, we initially proposed that a fund of that nature be 20 billion rather than 10 billion. Uh, you know, by definition, you sort of double the amount of of social housing coming out of the fund if you do that. And I would love to see the government do that. We should also, you know, keep in perspective that that is, you know, ultimately only going to help a, a small number of. Uh, admittedly vulnerable households in, in great need. Um, we have a broader challenge of housing affordability in the economy. To address that, we're going to have to see improvements in the private housing market as well. What I would like to see the government do, and this is not going to fix things overnight, but you know, a real long-term fix is to try and Get more supply into the areas where people want to live. That is the kind of inner and middle ring suburbs of of our major cities. Uh, at the moment, there is a lot of barriers to doing that in terms of planning laws, how long things take. Um, you know, trying to build medium density in these areas can be a challenge. Uh, I would like to see the Commonwealth government say, you know, let's incentivise the states to do this. It's politically hard. Uh, you do get a lot of backlash from people already in those suburbs if you you know, try and relax these laws. Uh, but you know if we are going to accommodate a bigger population, um, we can either just keep adding people to the fringes of our suburbs, um, or we can try and boost supply in these areas where you know people are close to jobs and amenities.
2: I remember Peter Costello talking about this, the need to boost supplies and working with the states and every treasurer I think since. And it just seems to be intransigent. I don't know. I mean, do you have any insight just briefly into what other countries have done?
0: I mean, what you can do is put money on the table. And um, the Commonwealth government did that um, with the national competition policy payments in the 90s. They got the states to do all sorts of hard things that they didn't otherwise want to do because there was money in it. For them, so that that certainly changes the conversation. Uh, but yeah, you need to be talking to these communities as well. You know, I think people are concerned about poor quality development, um, so trying to address concerns around that is important. Um, you know, pointing out some of the benefits of density. Uh, if you know, we've all gone to cities that are denser around the world, and you do get a lot of um, you know great amenities that go along with that. Um, so, look, I think it's got to be a combination of, of money, but also sort of shifting hearts and minds.
1: Well, you've you've shifted my economic heart and mind uh, by giving me such great analysis and I know our listeners will feel the same. Danielle, thanks for
2: coming in. Thanks
1: so much for having me.
2: Danielle, I think we'll make Meet the Economist a regular annual feature. <laughs> Thank you so much, Danielle. See you, Danielle. Delighted to help.
0: We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the
1: Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister.
2: Yes, the bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. And this week's question comes from Tyson.
1: Hi,
0: Fran. Hi, PK. Hope you had a great budget. I've always wondered what logistically happens during a budget lockup. Is it at media offices or a centralized location? Is it only in Canberra? Do you have to surrender your phones? Do you get physical copies, digital copies? How much time are you there before you're allowed out? What else are you even allowed to say? Thank you so much for making my Thursday. Have a good one.
2: I love the way people are intrigued by the lockup. PK, you're in the lockup this year. Tell Tyson all about it. Well, the funniest thing is when I wrote a text
1: message to my sister saying I'm going into lock up, which I always do so that people know I won't be contactable. And I'll explain that in a second. She wrote back, not lockdown again, because we come from Melbourne. Anyway, I was like, no, 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 calm down. So what does lock up look like? Well, it's changed a bit over the years, just a little bit. Changed a bit through COVID
2: really, didn't it? That's
1: right. So we used to go into these big uh, central areas, all the media, everyone would kind of get allocated rooms and so forth, but it was certainly not in media offices. You'd turn... Turn up and you have to actually sign a legal disclosure form you still have to do that where you essentially you surrender your phone to them and they literally lock it away from you. They cut off your internet access so that you can't leak information or do anything like that. And you also, by signing this legal document, say, you know, I know that I'm committing an offence if I somehow find a way to share any information and that there are consequences to that offence. Now, there's a reason for that. The budget is also market sensitive. They don't want markets to have access to it till the Treasurer stands on his feet and delivers the budget officially. So you are under an obligation of essentially shutting your mouth not having access to the outside world. It starts at 1.30, although you can go in later if you want. It changed during COVID. They wanted to keep us all separate, and uh, we now do it in the press gallery offices. So we're in our own offices at our own desks, but Treasury officials basically take over our offices and monitor us, and they do monitor us. In terms of whether it's just in Canberra, no. There's other lockups. So that if you're a newspaper office and you're making the paper, your editors get to be in a special lockup in Sydney or Melbourne, for instance and there are other exemptions like cute little story when I was very heavily pregnant with my second child Stella they let me be locked up in Melbourne and do a budget there did because they? yes they did because I wasn't allowed to get on the aeroplane because the plane wouldn't let me fly in case I gave birth. Treasury also wanted to know that I wasn't going to give birth in the lock-up. I didn't.
2: I, I've done many when we're in those centralized rooms where you've all finished your things, you know, the TV stories have been written. Uh, in the past, I used to have to interview the treasurer in the lockup sometimes and, and then you've got all your papers and you're gathered together and you're just waiting for the clock to tick to 7.30 when the Treasurer gets up on his feet. Then they open the doors and you flood out and you're running to your various studios in our case because we're always going on air, usually, straight afterwards. So it's uh, it's quite the anticipation, isn't
1: it? Well, yeah, it really is quite the anticipation. And then you've got access to the Treasury officials, then the Treasurer and the Finance Minister do what they call the walkthrough, that's the budget lock-up. You're not allowed out before 7.30. It doesn't matter what. I always wondered what would have happened if I did actually go into Labor. It would have been pretty hard. Not allowed. And then at 7.30, as soon as the Treasurer is on his feet, you can get your phone back
2: and you're released into the world. There you have it, Tyson. That's the budget lock-up. And that's it from us. We love getting your questions. We particularly like the voice ones, but you can easily record on your phone and email it to the party room at abc.net.au. And remember
1: to follow us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts and uh, give us reviews and help bump us up. Tell your friends, tell your best mate at the school pickup. That's it for us this week. See you, PK. See you, Fran. ABC Listen podcasts,
2: radio, news, music, and more.